Hello everyone, this is a special upcoming 200th episode announcement. As per request from my audience, I'll be the one on the interview stand for this one. And hosting me will be Charles Anderson, a longtime friend of the show, and the founder of Charles Reed Anderson and Associates. If you have any pending questions for me, please tweet to him at C-R-A-S-I-N-G-A-P-O-R-E-C-R-A Singapore or hashtag AA200 before the end of this weekend. Thank you. And now, back to the show. This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Jan Dawson from Jack Daw Research and Tech Narratives on a two-part conversation. In the first part of our conversation, we discuss Jan's latest project, technarratives.com, and discuss the recent narratives from the technology giants in Asia, from the BAT in China to SoftBank in Japan. Hi, Jan. Hi there. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Yes. And I'm talking to Jan Dawson, founder of Jack Daw Research and host of one of my favorite podcasts, Beyond Devices, which is now with Aaron Miller. And also recently, he started a new project called Tech Narratives. So Jan, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Yeah, I think it's been about two years since we last spoke. So there's been quite a bit going on. Mostly, you know, my day job is being the chief analyst and the manager, if you like, for my research and advisory firm, which is called Jackdaw Research. So a lot of my time spent working with clients from throughout the tech industry, helping them understand market trends and competitive dynamics and really understanding what they should be doing about all of that and how they can be successful in the market and so on. So that's what I do for a lot of my time. But then, as you mentioned, I have a couple of other things I do, including running a couple of podcasts and a few other subscription services that I offer for clients as well that, that anybody can buy into. So been p- keeping pretty busy between all of that. I also noticed that in both TechP and beyond devices you have started covering the BAT in China how is it like actually covering the Chinese internet tech giants from the US yeah it's obviously a lot tougher than it would be doing it locally because I have you know essentially no exposure to using these companies as a customer which always makes evaluating consumer technology companies much harder so you know I do my best I tend to focus mostly on the financials and then try to find authoritative sources, people that really know what they're talking about to sort of supplement my own understanding and what I read from the financial reports and so on. So I I try not to proclaim myself as some sort of expert. I know there are certainly people who know a lot more about these companies in terms of how they actually operate in detail in China. And I try to focus on the sort of financial comparisons, the stuff that you can do essentially from anywhere and then put that in a context that makes sense for people who are in the US as I am or, or elsewhere in the world outside of China. And of course, since we last spoke, you have actually set up this interesting project called Tech Narratives and actually I've been listening to your podcast week on week and been trying to uh, understand some of these tech narratives that have been ongoing and I think part of today's conversation is also to discuss some of these tech narratives with a few major dominant companies in Asia. So I want to start off by just asking you what is the motivation behind setting up the tech narrative site and the podcast as well? Yeah, absolutely. And and the site started first. The podcast is a relatively recent addition. The motivation behind starting the site was a sense I've had for a long time. If, if you work in the technology industry and if you 
spend a lot of time really evaluating what's going on, really getting to know the players, really following the market trends and what's actually happening underneath the surface and so on. It can be a very frustrating thing to read a lot of the news coverage of the technology industry because it's often very superficial, often uh, headline grabbing stuff, clickbait and various other things where uh, things that are happening are exaggerated in some cases or the meaning of what's happening is either exaggerated or distorted in some way. And one of the big things that tends to happen is that narratives form around companies or around trends in the industry. And, you know, narrative is really another word for a story. So what we're saying is these stories start to emerge and they take on a life of their own. And they're often exaggerations, if you like, or distortions of what's really happening. They're, they're often oversimplifications as well. In other words, if something's really going on in the industry, the narrative or the story that forms around it is often some distorted version of that. And so this is hard to talk about in the abstract. It helps to be more concrete. But if you're talking about Apple, for example, and I think Apple is particularly subject to this phenomenon of narrative springing up around it. You know, there's this sort of persistent narrative about Apple being doomed, that at some point, you know, everything's going to go horribly wrong for Apple. And any bit of negative news about Apple gets woven into this sort of narrative about, oh, things are starting to go wrong for Apple. You know, it, we knew it couldn't last. You know, everything's going to go wrong from here on. They're in decline and so on. And there's a certain glee with which some people kind of report that or write opinion pieces along those lines. And then, you know, you see Apple's next quarterly results and they're absolutely, you know, astonishing in terms of the profits in most of the past 13 years in terms of the growth as well. You know, so these narratives form and they're not accurate. They're sort of disconnected from reality. And so I had this increasing frustration with this phenomenon of these narratives growing up around these companies that seem to be detached from reality and in general, sort of superficial coverage of the market or a lazy or as I say, sort of clickbait driven coverage of the market where everything has to have some broader significance and the smallest little thing gets blown up into some big thing. And so what I wanted to do was, well, a couple of things. One was to provide some context, some underlying analysis of the market, of the companies and the trends in the market and say, here's what's really happening. And then with the day's big tech news, sort of evaluate each piece of tech news and put that in that context, sort of say, this is the news, this is what's really happening here. You may read this about it, but really, this is the proper way to understand what's happening. Here's the broader context in which these things sit. And so that's really been my intention with Tech Narratives, which is a website first and foremost and a subscription service associated with that, which provides both in-depth coverage of topics and trends over time and then commentary on the day's tech news. Uh, in both cases, the intention being to kind of cut through the narratives and everything else to get to the heart of what's really happening, what the real significance of it is and how people should be thinking about it. And then you use the podcast to supplement some of the tech narratives that actually been discussed on the site then? Yeah, the, the idea with the Tech Narratives podcast was we have this other podcast that you mentioned, the Beyond Devices podcast, which we've been doing for a couple of years now, Aaron Miller and I. And we really enjoy doing that. And it's basically a weekly podcast. Recently, it's split into two separate episodes because we kind of had two portions of the podcast that were quite different and it seemed to appeal to different audiences. And so we split it recently into sort of in-depth deep dive into a specific topic and then sort of a roundup of the week's news. What I realized was there's a lot of demand out there for people to get sort of a daily download on what happened in the last 20 four hours in the tech industry and what does it mean and so the tech narratives podcast is a daily podcast on weekdays published sort of in the evening sort of west to us coast time the idea is to offer 
a briefer version than I write up on the site without all the links and the additional context and so on, but a brief bit of analysis, roughly one minute per news item on about eight to 12 news items each day, the ones that I've written about on the site. And so that seems to have sort of struck a chord with people. People are listening to that one. And so that's gratifying, but I've only been doing that for the last three weeks or so, whereas the Tech Narrative site launched to the public back in January. And I've been following the website since when it was in the beta state. Yes. Specifically, I have a very curious question. How does the website select or feature a tech story and explain the narrative then? Yeah, absolutely. So it's challenging. There's so much news in the tech industry every day. There are so many publications that cover it and so on. And so there are clearly more than eight to 12 stories a day that would be of interest to at least some people. You know, every publication probably publishes a multiple of that and you have many publications. So clearly the, the number of possible stories to cover numbers in the hundreds every day. And so what I've tried to do is focus on the stories that I think are either the biggest stories that day. So these are significant news, no matter how you look at it, or stories that teach us something or are indicative of some broader trend or tell us something about the direction a company is moving in or serve as jumping off points for talking about a broader trend in the industry. And so what I try to do is pick roughly 10 pieces, sometimes less, sometimes more per weekday that I think fit that bill. And so I have a pretty well curated Twitter feed that I'm pretty actively on all day long where I'm reading tweets all day long. And so I see what the major publications are publishing, but I I follow a lot of individual reporters. And then I follow a lot of others, uh, people like yourself and others in the industry who seem to find interesting stuff and share it with their audiences. And so I follow many different people. And so I find that 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 gives me access to a lot of items. And so what I do every day throughout the day is I use a bookmarking service. And whenever I see an article or a link to an article that I think could be a candidate for inclusion today, I'll bookmark that. And then at two or three points during the day, I'll go through my list of bookmarks that I've gathered so far and think, okay, which ones of these are definitely things I want to cover today? And so I'll write up two or three of those at a time and publish them to the site. And so throughout the day, as I go through that process, I end up publishing, as I say, eight to 12 of those items. And they'll come from a range of publications. You know, I try to link back to the source if I can, if it's coming from a single authoritative source, if it's a story that everybody's covering, I just tend to link to whoever I see writing about it first. But in that sense, it's a little bit like the website tech meme that picks the top stories of the day. And I certainly use that as a source as well. But I try to go a little bit beyond that in that I cover some news items that might be lower profile, that might not be on most people's radars, but I think are interesting or important anyway. Specifically in Asia, what are the major companies with tech narratives that you're actually covering now and why? Yeah, Asia's interesting. I mean, it's I, I cover the global consumer technology market. And so I don't tend to cover specific regions with the exception of the US, which is where I'm based and where I cover the, the pay TV market and the uh, wireless carrier market and a few other markets specifically on a country basis. But much of the coverage that I have is global in nature. And so the obvious companies to mention in the context of Asia are the big, the ones that have some kind of a global presence. And so whether that's Samsung or LG, uh, whether that's Huawei or Xiaomi or the Eco or Sony, you know, there are quite a few of those companies that have a presence that goes well beyond Asia itself and certainly well beyond a single country in Asia. But there are also those that are obviously big in China. So you mentioned the BAT companies in China, Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent, other Chinese companies in the smartphone space, for example, Vivo and Oppo are two examples of companies that have seemingly come from nowhere over the last two or three years and suddenly ended up in the top 10 global smartphone vendors. So there are a number of companies, some of which, as I say, have more of a global presence, some of which are very big in China, but not necessarily outside of China. And so those are some examples of the companies that I do cover on Tech Narratives. 
So I'm pretty curious because I want to discuss some of these tech narratives with you with the major dominant companies in Asia. So I'm going to pick BAT and SoftBank. So I'm going to start with Baidu first. So Baidu has made a couple of headlines in autonomous vehicles or aka the self-driving cars by opening up their platform and partners with Bosch and Continental. What does that tell us about where they are in the self-driving car space? And then I think that could also be relating to the effort that is making by Waymo, which is part of Alphabet as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating to see these search engine companies both getting in a big way into self-driving cars and that whole autonomous driving technology area. Waymo is, I think, by many people considered to be the leader. And this is, of course, uh, used to be Google's self-driving car arm. It was separated out into its own company now called Waymo under their Alphabet kind of holding company umbrella. So they, they seem to be the leader by most standards, certainly done the most miles of driving with actual autonomous cars on uh, public roads and so on. But you know, Baidu has expanded into many different areas over the last few years, much as Google did before them. Uh, and yet they seem to have done it far less successfully, whereas Google has sort of had this massively successful core uh, search advertising and video advertising through YouTube and mobile advertising through Android and so on, a uh, business that's dr driven enormous growth and very high profits. That's allowed them to fund a lot of other stuff. In the case of Baidu, they seem to have done that a lot less successfully. They seem to have in some ways spread themselves too thin. They seem to have faced increasing threats in their core business. And so their business performance over the last few years in general has been far less impressive than uh, either of the other two huge uh, internet giants in China or for that matter, Alphabet and, and Google. In self-driving cars specifically, Baidu had one attempt. They, they worked for a while with BMW on a partnership and that fell apart. Their leadership of this part of their business has kind of been a little unstable. They had a, a high-profile departure early this year and they seem to have completely rethought their autonomous driving strategy since then. And so in the last few weeks, they have announced what they call sort of the Android of autonomous driving. In other words, it's an open platform that anybody can use and buy into and partner with and so on. And they have announced those kind of high profile partnerships with Bosch and Continental and others in the sort of uh, broader automotive value chain. And so their push is basically we're creating a platform. Anybody can use it. We're open to partnering with anyone. The challenge is going to be and this is a sort of unique challenge with regard to autonomous driving technology in China is it's very disconnected from the rest of the world. And so a key component of autonomous driving technology is very, very high detail mapping data. And in China, the government has basically said only local companies can create that and they have to be specifically licensed to do so. And so really no non-Chinese company is creating its own mapping data in China. And then it's just the Chinese companies creating their mapping data there, but they tend not to have really any meaningful mapping data outside of China. And so what you have is this sort of rest of world region where there are single companies becoming dominant in mapping data and in autonomous driving technology. And then in China, you have local companies led by Baidu working on this area. But to the extent that Baidu is creating an open platform, that looks really interesting in, in principle. But the fact that it's going to be very limited in terms of the applicability to the Chinese market from a mapping data perspective is going to limit its appeal to lots of global car vendors who are going to want to do global deals uh, with companies building autonomous driving technology or to develop their own. And so those companies will want to partner with Baidu or somebody else in China because China is an important region for all of them. But it's going to mean that Baidu's open platform isn't going to get broad uh, traction with global car vendors. The other big challenge for Baidu and this open platform is it's very theoretical at this point. So they do have components. They've published some of the open source repositories and so on. 
But ultimately, a lot of the actual underlying technology and the components of that system are not there yet. So there's a lot of coming soon to their platform. So it's, as I say, highly theoretical at the moment. It's not really a platform that you can really go out and take and implement in a self-driving car today on public roads or anything like that. So it's a it's fascinating, different approach to what we've seen from elsewhere, although there is I would say, a push towards open platforms and and more open approaches to self-driving. So, you know, Uber here in the U.S. has been a huge company in the self-driving space over the last couple of years. They've got in some legal trouble with Waymo that they're currently involved in a lawsuit with over their LiDAR technology. Uh, But Lyft, Uber's big U.S. competitor in the the ride-sharing space, has not developed any of its own technology and is taking a more open approach. So they have a partnership with Waymo a partnership with other co- couple of other companies testing autonomous driving technology. And so this more open approach, this partnership approach seems to be one that is gaining some momentum. So I think Baidu's timing is good in that sense. I just think there are some fairly significant limits on how effective they can actually be in selling that technology and forming meaningful partnerships with other companies. So for Alibaba specifically, they have recently announced this $73 speaker that's similar to the Google Home and Amazon Echo. I guess the narrative I want to ask is, are they merely following the footsteps of Amazon because they're very similar in nature or they're trying to build a different perspective in the home automation front end? Yeah, it's interesting because... Amazon clearly created this category. There really was nothing else like the Amazon Echo before that debuted in late 2014. And so to some extent, everybody else that enters the market for voice-controlled home speakers is copying Amazon's strategy because Amazon's really proved that there is a market there that's worth pursuing, frankly. And so we've seen you know, Google come into that market late last year. We've now seen Apple announce its entry into that market, although with quite a different positioning. We've seen quite a few companies announce Alexa-powered or Cortana powered speakers. Increasingly, Google Assistant will be in some of those speakers as well. And now we've seen, obviously, Alibaba announce something too. And so on on paper, it's basically the same category, the same product category, and so on. Obviously, it won't compete with Amazon Echo or the Google Home because those aren't available in China, and Alibaba's device will only be available in China. So it's really creating a market uh, in China. And there are other companies, Tencent's talked about building such a speaker, Baidu's talked about building such a speaker. So uh, there will be other competitors in the Chinese market. But it's interesting to look at the way that Alibaba's promoted their device. It's clearly a heavy home automation focus to it. And people in the US, for example, who have Amazon Echo, I'd say a good subset of those people are using it because they have smart home devices they want to control by voice. But it seems like it's more of a focus for Alibaba speaker included. The price is a lot lower, which partly reflects Chinese components and and other things like that. But it's basically the same category, but with a slightly different spin on it. You clearly will be able to order things from Alibaba just as you can order things from Amazon through the Amazon Echo. But the focus seems more shifted towards home automation and some other stuff than perhaps uh, Amazon's sales and marketing effort around the Echo would suggest. And then the other one that I thought was very interesting was, is Alibaba managing expectations with their recent announcements in global expansion? Yeah, so they've they've talked about expanding into other markets and, and clearly they do have some international presence already, but it's as is the case with pretty much all of the big Chinese companies, they are far more successful in China than outside of it. And this is actually one of the narratives that I have on the site. So there are roughly 50 narratives that I have on the Tech Narrative site. And these are sort of those narratives that I talked about at the beginning, these stories that emerge around companies, some of which are relatively accurate, some of which are pretty inaccurate. And I just tend to just name them after what the prevailing narrative is, regardless of whether it's accurate or not. One of them is Chinese expansion. And it's actually really two narratives in one. And it really describes the challenges 
cases of overseas companies breaking into the Chinese market. We've got high profile examples like Google and Facebook that have failed in China and had to pull out. And you've got many examples of Chinese companies that have tried to break out and equally not been that successful yet. And so Alibaba is certainly going against the grain here in trying to break out of China. You know, the cultural differences and, and many other differences between China and other parts of the, of the world make it very challenging for these companies to break out unless they make an acquisition somewhere. So Lenovo, for example, acquired Motorola with an existing brand and presence in many Western markets. That certainly helped them. That seems to be one of the more successful ways to break out. Alibaba doesn't seem to be planning to do that. It seems to be planning to take its existing brands and products outside of China. And so, you know, they are going to be spending quite a bit of money on that. That's clearly an important thing for them to be doing as they, you know, try to hedge against potential future market slowdowns in China or simply maxing out the addressable market in China for the things that they offer there. But they're going to have to prove that they've cracked it in a way that many other Chinese internet companies haven't. And that's going to be pretty challenging. So I'm skeptical on principle that a company like Alibaba can be successful in expanding outside of China. But we'll have to see the details of what they actually end up doing to see whether that, that is going to be possible, whether they will break the past pattern there. And most of actually Alibaba's group's activity is currently actually in the Southeast Asia region and they're actually going to be taking on Amazon, which is going to be opened up in this market as well. I want to come to Tencent then. There is this narrative that you were talking about that is actually ties both Alibaba and Tencent together. Is are talking about a startup called Stripe from Y Combinator that actually turning on Alipay and Tenpay in China. What's the narrative for that then? Yeah, this is really about the fact that Stripe, which is you know pretty prominent here in the US and many other Western markets, has uh, recently launched the Hong Kong market. And of course, you, once you get into the greater China region, you are going to be dealing with Chinese mobile payment infrastructure and that kind of thing. And so Stripe largely uses credit cards. It had introduced Apple Pay a few months ago in the US and some other markets as an alternative payment mechanism on websites and on, on mobile phones and so on. But if you want to be successful in payments in the greater China region, you clearly have to support some of the big Chinese payment ecosystems, including Alipay. So they added that support. And the key point here is they're in about 25 countries Stripe now globally, including now Hong Kong, although not the People's Republic of China. But they clearly, the merchants that they support can sell into China, can have customers in China, certainly in Hong Kong. And so they need to support that. And it's really just indicative of the fact that though credit cards and something like Apple Pay work for pretty much the rest of the world as the main payment mechanisms that you need, China continues to be unique and different when it comes to payments. They, uh, you know, in China, the mobile payments is a much bigger thing than it is anywhere else in the world. And these, you know, dominant platforms that, that power most of those payments and the whole structure around that. So if you want to be successful in selling into those markets, if you want to be successful in supporting merchants who are selling into those markets, you have to support these local payment mechanisms. And so it's, you know, yet another Another sign of that difference between China is culturally, in terms of the use of technology and so on, it, it continues to be a very different market. You know, something that was highlighted this week by the announcement by Apple that they're appointing a new head of Greater China, a managing director who's a Chinese national, spent a long time in North America and now be going back to China. She has helped spearhead at Apple some of the efforts to add QR codes and other things like that in China on iOS over the last couple of years as a recognition of the fact that the Chinese market is just very different and you cannot succeed as a Western company in China with the same old stuff that works everywhere else. When it comes to Tencent, it's also talk about gaming. So one of the interesting narrative that you brought up in your site is that does the market actually favor Tencent's dominance in gaming due to the recent announcement that China has actually superseded US in the mobile gaming market? Yeah, this is a fascinating story about the global gaming market and how China is now a bigger market than the US is. And the US, of course, has always been the biggest market until now. And a big part of that is Tencent and WeChat 
and the the games that run off that platform, which have been incredibly popular in China, and China obviously a huge market from a population perspective, and also from an online and mobile population perspective. And so, yeah, Tencent's become the biggest player in mobile gaming globally, and off the back of one or two really successful games. And there have now been stories that they're looking to take one of those games, I believe it's called Honor of Kings,、uh, outside of China to some Western markets now because it's just been so popular in China. It's been so popular in China they've actually recently had to place. Restrictions on how long children can play the game for each day because there's worries about it being addictive and children playing the game too much, not doing their homework and doing other things. So,、uh, you know, it's been very successful in China, and so this would be another test of the narrative about Chinese companies breaking out of China into Western markets and doing that successfully. And so they are reported to be trying to take that game overseas. And so it would be really quite remarkable if they were able to do that successfully. A lot of the big successful mobile games have been. Owned by companies from outside of North America, which is interesting because the, the global tech market outside of China is really dominated by North American companies, especially U.S. companies. But in mobile gaming, you've had、uh, Scandinavian companies from Europe owning some of the big, you know, popular games like Angry Birds and so on. Supercell, another big game owner from Europe, King Digital from the U.K.,、uh, and then some big、uh, Asian game makers as well. We haven't had a big Chinese game maker be successful in the Western markets yet, so this would be a great test of that. But because they've been so successful domestically, they're Certainly, evidence that Tencent can be successful globally. They'll just have to pursue a different model, obviously, because they won't have WeChat to build off. It will have to be a standalone app sold through iOS and Android app stores outside of China. So it will be a different model for them, and that will be another transition that may be challenging. I want to come to the last company, which is SoftBank and SoftBank in Japan. Why did SoftBank purchase Boston Dynamics and shift from Alphabet? Because SoftBank has their own robot, robotics called the Pepper Robot. So, how did they come about? Yeah, SoftBank's. I think one of the most fascinating companies. I didn't mention them earlier because I tend to come across them mostly as the parent of companies that I'm actually covering because they they're increasingly moving towards this sort of holding company conglomerate type structure where they buy stakes in and often buy outright companies in many disparate areas within the technology industry. And those companies continue to kind of operate as independent entities under the SoftBank umbrella, pursuing different strategies. And so you mentioned a couple of things recently, but they bought this robotics business that.、Uh, Alphabet had been trying to offload for some time now, and、uh, it does clearly fit with their Pepper robot that they already have. So they have an investment in robotics.、So、this is a very different kind of robotics. So whereas Pepper is very much kind of consumer-facing, friendly robots, the Boston Dynamics robots have been these kind of scary, industrial sort of almost military robots, sort of animal-like things that can perform tasks and so on in, in a different setting. But clearly, it's all part of this broader robotic spectrum, and that seems to be one of the areas where SoftBank's investing. Along with、uh, mobile gaming, and they've obviously made a big investment there, and a number of others. They invested a couple of years ago in Sprint, a big wireless carrier here in the U.S., which they've been unsuccessfully trying to merge with another player for some time now. So, really fascinating sort of conglomerate strategy, investing in a lot of different areas around the world, rather than having a sort of single. Uh, market segment that they go after, just trying to get exposure to a lot of sort of hot trends and different geographies, also throughout the world. So, a really kind of unique tech company. I thought, for from an Asian point of view, I thought that you also SoftBank is also giving the narrative that is reasserting Japan's dominance in robotics back because、mm. that has actually gone to the US and by purchasing Boston Dynamics and Shaft, they actually got back that core competency of Japan being the best in robotics. That's a great point. Just before I end off, I just want to ask. What's the narrative for SoftBank trying to sell with, with Sprint talking to T-Mobile informally on merger again? I mean, this has been talked about many many times, but they have started talks again informally recently. Is there a kind of narrative that they're trying to sell? 
Yeah, well, this is one of the fascinating things about SoftBank's purchase of Sprint was that it seemed to be motivated by a desire to merge it with another U.S. wireless carrier. And the obvious candidate was T-Mobile, because at the time that SoftBank bought Sprint, uh, T-Mobile's owner, Deutsche Telekom, was trying to offload its stake. And T-Mobile had been struggling along with Sprint. And, and the two are the smaller of the big four wireless operators in the U.S., much smaller than the two largest ones. And so the theory was by combining the two, you'd get scale that would be more competitive with the big players. You know, both of these struggling companies would suddenly uh, come together with a single network with some efficiencies and all the rest of it. So it's a great theory. The problem was that the U.S. administration politically at the time was against uh, further large merger activity in the wireless market. And so they basically shut the merger down before it even was officially proposed. And so SoftBank bought this asset, Sprint, with the hope of merging it with T-Mobile. That was shut down very quickly. And so they were left with a standalone asset in the US. And so SoftBank's done its best to try to turn Sprint around. And they've got a new CEO who's been there for a couple of years now who has done some interesting stuff to turn them around. They've definitely made some progress, but they continue to lag far behind T-Mobile, which has been far more successful over the last two or three years and arguably the leader in many ways in driving change in the US wireless market during that time. Now that we've had a change of government in the US and we have the Trump administration and the Republican administration generally more favorable towards large mergers and so on, there is the thinking that uh, these companies might now be allowed to merge, uh, whereas they weren't several years ago. And so there have been some informal talks, as you say. Right now, those talks are off because Sprint is actually talking to some other companies some cable companies out there that are interested in making some investments in the wireless industry in the US. So right now, those talks are on hold and T-Mobile just had its earnings yesterday and they kind of downplayed all of this. But it's still possible that T-Mobile and or Sprint could end up in some kind of combination either with each other or with other players in the market, because they continue to be the smaller carriers. They need more scale to be more profitable, more successful in the market. And so with an, an administration that seems friendlier towards those mergers, it's still likely that something will happen at some point uh, between these companies. Yeah, thank you so much for talking to us about the tech narratives with the Asian companies, particularly with the BAT and SoftBank. And we will come back for part two in the next episode.